0: You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family.
1: Hello and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Aiken,
0: And I'm Tim Warden. And we have a really interesting episode with huge implications for how we, we examine lameness. But I think as well, looking towards the future, it's going to have a, a huge implication for uh, just how we train horses in general.
1: Yeah, today's episode is a, a fun one. Um, we had Lindsay St. George on to discuss her research, um, utilizing EMG to evaluate, um, I mean, Tim, maybe you're better at this than me, but, um, the way sort of the muscles react to induce lameness, um, really, really fascinating stuff. And I think for me, what's most exciting, um, is more the the long term um, uses for for this type of technology and how it can hopefully help us train better and smarter and and work our work each you know individual horse the way they need to be worked so that they can um, you know be their strongest and and prevent injury prevent lameness. So um, you know, Lindsay shares a lot about the the actual you know studies that she's done so far and they are you know sort of early stages but I was really excited by this conversation because um, of of the future of of what it all represents so um, really really cool stuff and hope you guys enjoy it.
0: So Lindsay is a research fellow at the University of Central Lancashire where she completed her PhD in 2017. Her research examines equine and human biomechanics with a special interest in using surface electromyography to investigate how equine muscles facilitate movement. she is a 2021 Morris Animal Foundation Fellowship recipient and is working to evaluate the impact of equine lameness on movement and muscle activity with colleagues at Utrecht University and Delsis. Lindsay is involved in several other national and international equine research collaborations, as well as supervising postgraduate student research. Hi, Lindsay, and welcome to the Sport Horse podcast. Hi. So we've got a lot to cover today. Uh, I'm super excited to have you. Just before we get into your actual uh, results from some of the work you've been doing, uh, I want to briefly touch on the unique model that your team uses to induce lameness in what are typically clinically sound horses. So can you explain how you induce this lameness?
2: Yeah, um, so the model has actually been around for uh, some time. It was first- described in the literature in the late 80s by um, and Shamhart. Um, And I will maybe just specify at this point in time that I'm not an equine vet, but I work with um, some very highly experienced and respected equine veterinarians on this project. And they are the ones who induced and and monitored the lameness. So um, I will just specify that it, it was induced and monitored by some highly experienced people. Um, so yeah, the, the model has been used in, in several studies. It's not unique to our study. Um, but we basically use a modified horseshoe that has a, a welded crossbar or a crossbar that's welded between the medial and the lateral sides of the horseshoe. And it's got a nut in the center of the crossbar at around the, the toe region of the hoof, kind of above the frog, the tip of the frog. Um, and Kind of what we do is it, that allows us to induce screw pressure. So we use a mechanical flat-headed screw to exert pressure on the, the sole of the hoof. Um, the model's completely reversible, and you can alter the, the degree of lameness by tightening the screws to a greater or lesser extent. Um, so we were aiming for kind of two out of five on the AAEP scale, um, and... And of course you can reverse the model by just completely removing the screw screw pressure from the the hoof. So it's not unique, but it's a a transient lameness model and it allows us to kind of directly compare adaptive movement and muscle activity when horses are acting as their own control under standardized conditions. So,
0: okay. And then, uh, I, guess just, just two quick follow-up questions. Um, I guess the first being, so it's, it's a relatively regular shoe. So if there was no screw pressure, then the horse would move completely normally, right? Like it would ambulate as it would in a regular shoe.
2: Yeah, it does. Um, Like I said, it's just literally a a welded crossbar across the kind of the shoe where the, in the toe region. Um, And we actually were able to assess The effectiveness of our lameness model, but also the kind of non lame or sound status of the horses because we used um, objective gait analysis. So we used the Qualysis um, system, specifically, we used the Q horse system. And we also used um, EquiPro, um, the EquiPro IMU system. So we were actually able to quantify these kinematic upper body asymmetry parameters that are more frequently being used by veterinarians to um, assess lameness and, and soundness. So our horses were all assessed as being sound by subjective evaluation from the vets that we were working with, but also objectively, once the data were collected and analyzed, the horses fell within these published thresholds for soundness. So the shoe doesn't seem to affect um, their normal way of going whatsoever. Um, it's it's literally when you apply the mechanical shoe pressure that you kind of can induce this really nice transient lameness model. So
0: awesome. really interesting. And then uh, you wouldn't have data on this. So it's more of just, uh, I guess, your own perception of it. But did you find that some horses were... I guess more tolerant to the pain than others. Like some, like you really had to, I guess, deform that part of the hoof, like by increasing the pressure, like much more to get any sort of response versus others. Like they could have just a little bit of pressure and then, you know, they're, you know, three legged lame almost.
2: Definitely. I wouldn't say any of them went three legged lame, but it was more horses that we had to apply a bit more screw pressure to get the result that we wanted. I guess like. I would attribute the model um, to walking with a stone in your shoe. Like some of us can tolerate it more than others. And it's not enough to really, you know, make you feel like you're in a lot of pain, but it's enough that you feel a little bit of discomfort that's going to change your way of going. So some horses were definitely more tolerant than to it than others. And but that's that's the beauty of this model, is the flexibility to be able to you know, adjust the degree of pressure that you're applying to the horse's hoof for what they can tolerate and also to get the degree of lameness that you're after. Um, in our case, it was a relatively mild degree of lameness, so two out of five is quite mild. But, um, but yeah, there, there was definitely individual responses to the model.
1: Great. I think that's really great context um, to get us into your studies. So you published two studies looking at muscle activation in horses that had this induced lameness that you just described um, in the forelimbs or hindlimbs. One study focused on spinal motion and muscle activation, specifically the thoracolumbar region while the other focused on motion and muscle activation in the limbs. Can you give us a brief sort of elevator pitch on the key findings from this work?
2: Yeah, um, so all the data were collected at the same time, and it is the same study. We just published it across two papers um, because they are quite descriptive, extensive studies. Um, Really difficult to give a you know, overview, because I, th- I think we studied seven muscles, or six muscles, but two locations on longissimus, so the back muscle. Um, so there's, there's a lot of kind of, you could go into each muscle individually. But for me, um, the main take home message from from both papers is that, obviously, we understand there's been a lot of work done in the movement adaptations that occur during lameness um, or the the compensatory mechanisms that a horse uses to kind of offload the lame limb. We know a lot about that. What we don't know a lot about is, you know, what are the underlying neuromuscular mechanisms that occur during lameness and how do they kind of facilitate these these movement adaptations that we can visually assess to a degree and sometimes that we, we actually can't see with the human eye. So this is the first study where we we've really looked in depth at trying to kind of quantify and understand that neuromuscular level of adaptation to lameness. And we did this using surface electromyography. Um, and I think the main takeaway message is that we found significant differing muscular adaptations occur during induced four and hind limb lameness, and that these are actually detectable using surface EMG. Um, we did find that these muscular changes reflected associated changes in the limb and the thoracolumbar movement cycles. And it was really nice that the changes in adaptation, that movement adaptation that we observed were in agreement with previous studies. Um, And I think probably people would say, oh, of course, the, you know, muscular adaptations occur during lameness. But until now, it's it's this has been assumed but never proven. Um, so in our studies, we've shown that the gait abnormalities that we recognize as lameness are actually effectuated through muscular changes. Um, for me, this is significant and it justifies further exploration as EMG as a complementary tool for objective gait analysis, um, whether that's for looking at you know your non- lame horse or your lame horse or monitoring treatment or rehabilitation. so, so yeah, I think um I think for me that's the main takeaway.
1: Yeah, that's really fascinating and I think you know we talk a lot on this podcast about sort of bridging the gaps between science and horsemanship and and what you just alluded to was that, you know, it's sort of it's been assumed we we can sort of get the sense based on our experience working with horses and and you know, previous research that's been done but Having the science to back it up gives us a new level of understanding that can um, potentially, you know, lead to a, a deeper understanding and and possibly improved outcomes. I'm I'm curious though if there are applications here to sort of flip it on its head and and reverse this a little bit. We talk a lot about like treating lameness, um, but you know, Tim and I like to get into a lot about preventing lameness. Um, so I'm wondering if there's, you know, something to be learned here that can be applied to, you know, the prevention model and, and, you know, helping, helping our listeners to, you know, strengthen their horses and work the muscles in a way that can potentially improve outcomes and, and, and prevent lameness.
2: Yeah, I think if I think if if we can better understand muscular adaptations um, alongside, you know, the gait abnormalities that we recognize as lameness, these could inform some of these objective lameness detection methods that we kind of are becoming a lot more popular in terms of the IMU systems or you know, if you have the luxury of having a colouris system in your clinic. But um, I think if we can improve these methods, then this could lead to more early diagnosis or treatment, which could maybe detect subclinical issues in supposed healthy horses before they actually become a real issue. And I think um, obviously the work that we're talking about right now is focused on clinical applications for EMG in relation to lameness. But I think from maybe an equestrian or, you know, physiotherapy perspective, where we're always working on muscular balance, straightness, symmetry, you know, horses have a weakness or a weak side a lot of the time that we're trying to kind of improve the, the symmetry of. And I think we've got a long way to go with this. But at the end of the day, there actually are currently no diagnostic tools for measuring isolated muscle function, like EMG does. So if we could find ways of maybe implementing this as an objective way of measuring these things in practice, then for sure there, there, there could be applications for kind of what you're describing. And I think that's kind of the ultimate goal with this type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it has a lot of applications outside of, of just, you know, veterinary use. Um, but it's it's a long way down the road, um, because ultimately, as it stands right now, as long as you kind of take the proper steps to ensure that you get a nice high quality signal, so like proper skin prep, proper sensor location on the muscle, if you can tick all those boxes, it's actually relatively easy to acquire these data. It's the... Processing and analysis afterwards, that's quite time consuming. It requires, you know, some expert knowledge and understanding some software that's not particularly easy to use. So I think, you know, the next steps would be trying to come up with maybe more turnkey systems for analyzing these data so that they can be placed in the hands of someone who's not a researcher, you know, someone who is a a vet or a physio or an equestrian or a trainer um i think we need to kind of tick those boxes but if we can do that then for sure i think it could be used as a preventative tool
0: yeah and and just to echo your your comments lindsay i think that's like i'm always excited about what the future of sport is and, and training and i think if you look through any textbooks in our world right now you you which what we tend to focus on is the drawings of horses in different positions. Right. And it's like, you know, this is where if your horse is like well-balanced collected, this is what it looks like on the outside. But I think what's really exciting about this, uh, like EMG work that's coming down the pipeline, like from groups like yours, Lindsay, is that eventually we'll start to realize that, okay, like if a horse is a little bit on the forehand, it's actually because the muscle is slow to turn on in these different muscle groups and like, or, you know, there's just delayed activation or maybe muscle is never turning off really. So, you know, if a horse is really tight through the, through the spine uh, and you always have that activation, then you know that 10, 15 minutes into the workout, like those muscles are shot and then like the horse just has no core strength left. And that's why like the technique tends to dissolve or disappear. And I think it's those types of things that a lot of trainers and coaches aren't thinking about so much right now and not just for the horse for the riders as well it has implications and i think like these studies there aren't so many of them right now but as that body of literature grows and grows like we'll be able to put that together more and more and say like okay like instead of trying to think about like how do you just collect a horse it's going to become more of like how do we cue certain muscles to turn on and whether that's uh, i know there are all these different devices out there some probably work some probably don't but i think that's Sort of the exciting next frontier, I think, for training is to understand those muscle activation patterns, like how do you stimulate those? Because if you get the muscles firing co- correctly, then everything else sort of takes care of itself in a lot of cases. And uh, we, we won't have time to get to it today, but I know we're going to be bugging you to come back on, Lindsay, because you've got some <laughs> studies with jumping horses and muscle oh, yeah. activation, which I'm really excited about. So that'll be a, a future episode. Um, getting back on topic, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, the the kinematic movement data is is really interesting, but um, I think the the muscle activation is so novel and there just aren't that many studies out there that do it, especially over ground. It's done a lot more on the treadmill, but to actually do it with a horse moving more freely is really, um, really new and unique. Um, What do you think the future is for EMG? Like, how far away do you think we are from a larger veterinary class? clinics having these applications and being able to apply them to horses would maybe some of those more challenging cases where they can't really locate that lameness and using this data to try to, to pinpoint where the affected ish area is.
2: Yeah. um, I think like, first off, I think you hit the nail on the head with, you know, kind of trying to understand these underlying muscular or neuromuscular mechanisms, because at the end of the day, human human vision alone cannot uh, detect what the, the muscles are doing. We can we can detect movement to a certain degree. Obviously, there's limitations to the human eye, but there's no way we can visually assess, you know, what's happening underneath it all and how the muscles are functioning. So, yeah, I think you hit the nail on that head with this one. And I think that that's kind of what I'm always trying to push forwards with this kind of work. Um, in terms of how far we have to go, from a veterinary perspective, again, just what I was saying before: um, if you can tick the boxes for best practice for data acquisition, that's relatively straightforward. Um, it's the time-consuming nature afterwards of the analysis, and also we're still, you know, using EMG in horses is really in its infancy, especially when you compare it to you know, how long it's been used in humans for research clinics, sports science, et cetera. So we're also still working on things like, you know, what is best practice for analyzing and processing these signals, be it, you know, what type of filter we apply to it, um, you know, things like that. So we're still working on the best ways to collect the data and analyze the data. So that's one step that we need to kind of, you know, build on. And, um, and then again as i said it's it's going to be really important for us to create some you know turnkey user friendly analytics software where you know everything is kind of processed and analyzed in the background and your clinician or your lay person is presented with some sort of user friendly nice graphical interface that allows them to interpret the data you know in a in a quick way so we have a long way to go in terms of that and i think that our work in this area is just kind of the starting point you know we've shown that this this technology is capable of detecting these adaptations and then now it's where we take it from here um one of the other things that i think is really important to note is that our our studies are preliminary in nature so they do have some limitations. Um, You know, we, we looked at a a relatively small sample of eight horses and we did only study um, an acute transient lameness model. So we still have more work to do to understand whether the changes that we observed are actually present and clinically meaningful in the wider population of horses. So horses that actually have clinical lameness or, chronic lameness cases. Um, And we also need to kind of determine what are the most clinically meaningful and sensitive EMG measures that are best at differentiating between a a non-lame and a lame horse. Um, And we're working on that a little bit, but it's also important to note that these our study was unique in that each horse acted as their own control. So we had a baseline measurement when the horse was sound and then we induced lameness afterwards. So we were able to really directly understand these cause and effect relationships. Whereas in a real world scenario, as a veterinarian, you don't always know the horse. You're usually only presented with the horse when there's a problem. So you don't really have that, that reference point to begin with. So we need to kind of get some standalone measures um, similar to kind of what what the kinematic asymmetry parameters are looking at. So that's, you know, differences in the left and right side of the pelvis, or, you know, differences in head movement during left and right forelimb stance. Those are all standalone ratio variables that you can use to assess lameness. We need to come up with some similar measures for EMG as well. So I don't know, the list goes on, like, hopefully, this highlights the fact that we have a long way to go. But I think if we can get to that point, and if we can start to integrate EMG into some of the existing objective lameness detection, or even just objective gait analysis, um, I think it'll allow the user to have the opportunity to go beyond just looking at movement asymmetries, which are obviously extremely important but it allows you to go beyond that and understand the underlying neuromuscular mechanisms that are contributing to that, or maybe are happening, but not really being shown by those kind of movement asymmetry measures. So yeah, I think it would be useful. And also important to note that in humans, the same combination of EMG and kinematic or motion sensing techniques are used to you know, clinically assess humans. So I think the same potential is there for horses. We just have a little way to go to catch up to, to what was being done with human patients.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's all super exciting. Clearly there are a lot of hurdles to clear um, (laughs) and uh, it's exciting stuff though. And, and I think, you know, just seeing sort of the, the leap that objective gait analysis has sort of taken in the last, uh, five to ten years, I think um, you know, it's becoming more and more accessible um to more clinicians. And and so I think it does bode well for this kind of technology. But I think you <laughs> very, very clearly outlined some of the challenges. But I have no doubt that um, you know, a few years from now we'll we'll have you back here to <laughs> um to tell us that you've you've figured it all out and um, you know, anybody can can use EMG now to <laughs> better understand their horses oh be great uh, <laughs> um but uh just coming back to your study for a minute um I, t- and talking about sort of the the parameters um that that you guys examined so you examined both the onset of muscular activation as well as the amplitude of the signal um, can you just outline those briefly and and tell us if one parameter was more insightful than the other or more more interesting informative
2: yeah i think it's really hard to say at this stage which one is more insightful i think in terms of the the study and the paper both the amplitude and the timing parameters contributed pretty equally to our findings Um, I know that my veterinary colleagues were really interested in the the timing parameters. So um, we're talking about things like when the muscle comes on or off within the stride cycle and the duration of time for how long the muscle was active. And for that, we're looking really at... Um, EMG signals have, you know, a baseline activity amplitude, and then we get the bursts of activity, which is generally when the muscle is active. So we're, we're kind of measuring the onset and the offset of that burst and and how long it's active within the stride. Um, So yeah, they were really interested in, in understanding that I think that comes down to our existing understanding of how the phasic cycles of movement change within the stride cycle when a horse is lame. So, you know, kind of putting those two things together. Um, And that definitely told us a lot. We saw phasic shifts in for earlier or delayed muscle activation, depending on the limb. Um, And these matched up really well with things like, you know, delayed protraction and retraction in the lame diagonal pair, because, you know, we know that a horse with uh, limb lameness for example there's a delayed suspension phase within that diagonal pair they want to get to the non-limb diagonal pair as soon as possible and our our muscle activity um, onset and offset reflected that as well as the kinematic changes um, we also looked at some an amplitude variable we we only used one which was the average rectified value so this is kind of your average amplitude of the emg signal um, within a a specific time domain. So in this case, it was one trot stride. Um, and that was also a really interesting parameter. We, we found mostly bilateral increases in this measure. So bilateral increases in amplitude across the muscles, but there were certain muscles where there was kind of an asymmetry there. So for example, in a four limb lame horse, we found that the lame side of the triceps, increase in amplitude and the non lame side triceps actually decrease in amplitude compared to the baseline condition, of course. So, you know, that might make for a nice asymmetry parameter from an EMG perspective that could stand alone. Um, But again, like I said, in terms of which one is more insightful than the other, it's really difficult to say at this stage because we are a little way off from understanding whether or what of these changes are clinically meaningful, um, and also whether they're present in you know a clinical population of lame horses. So, um, yeah, I think it's really hard to say at this stage.
0: Yeah, and like just as you were chatting there, uh, like I know on the human side, like the one thing you tend to see with like muscle fatigue is you see like a decreased frequency. In that signal and increased amplitude and and i guess that's one of the things you wouldn't probably see in your model just because it is like a very acute lameness that you induce but yeah. I, I think like probably those like frequency metrics as well where you're looking at certain muscles and you know, in in a horse that may be just pulled out of the stall that should be quite fresh, like in horses that are struggling a little bit with pain or some lameness somewhere that they're trying to protect, or we'll probably end up finding, or you'll probably end up finding some muscles that, you know, are always fatigued. And I, and I think again, like it's, I'm purely, uh, I need to preface this by saying this is purely speculative, (laughs) but I sometimes think like it, it sounds terrible, but You know, if you ever, if I ever hear of a horse like breaking down in the ring, I usually go and try to watch that video to see like, was there anything in that horse that looked like it maybe did? There was a warning sign before the catastrophic event happened. Right. Yeah. And like, I I think that I would almost guarantee that if you had EMG on horse at all times, like you would always see it coming. I would guess. Like, I think it's pretty rare or pretty unlikely that like a horse truly just has like one catastrophic event in the ring it's a little bit different if a horse is galloping and steps in a no groundhog hole like there's yeah yeah no nothing there but uh yeah just curious to hear your thoughts on like is the frequency domain something you're really looking at right now
2: we didn't um include frequency domain parameters in this paper as you said um our lameness model was acute so and um, the way that we collected the data was the data was collected at Utrecht, which is just the perfect facility for this. Cause they have a hall where they do lameness workups, but around that hall are 18 qualisys cameras. And we've got these just really nice, um, hard surface tracks. Um, so you, you can collect your 3d kinematic data, your IMU data, your EMG data in this amazing room. Um, but our our data collection was pretty quick. We did the baseline measures, which was walking down the runway twice, once in each direction. And then, of course, your trot stride is bigger than your walk stride, so we doubled that up for the trot, so we could get enough enough strides. So the horse traversed the runway four times at trot at the baseline. Then we induced lameness. Then we repeated it again. So two walk trials, four trot trials. So within that time frame we were highly unlikely to see, you know, the the changes that you might expect to see in a frequency domain kind of parameter. But I think long-term, especially looking at, you know, maybe some chronic cases um, or even just, you know, clinical cases that come in, that would be really interesting. And you mentioned before, um, you know, fatigued muscles or, you know, muscles where there's an issue there, you don't always see that relaxation baseline occurring. And I know that's been shown in the human literature as well. So, you know, we maybe expect to see a similar thing in horses that we could also kind of identify through frequency domain analysis. I think the one thing we have to just be really careful of is obviously your frequency domain analysis during dynamic movement, you've got to use kind of special analytics techniques to really actually analyze that properly. Um, but it's not impossible. So it's definitely something I've thought of kind of looking into in the future when we when we can hopefully get to a point where we're looking at more chronic, complicated cases with EMG.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Just looking at the, the clock here, I <laughs> I know that the, the conversation has maybe gone a bit over what we had promised you when you uh, hopped on. So what ask. Well, We'll ask you our uh, last question. It's a question we ask everyone, and it's: if you could speak directly to a horse and the horse could understand you, would you want to tell them?
2: That's so. That's so difficult. Um, um I think I would tell them that you know, I understand that we as humans can sometimes ask a lot of horses and that's not necessarily just from an athletic perspective, you know, you know, we ask a lot from them in terms of their behavior, their routine, etc. cetera. Um, so I think I would say, you know, we appreciate that you bring a lot to our lives. Um, but I probably would want them to know that there's, you know, a really large community of people that are devoting basically their working lives or even their lives to kind of trying to improve um, you know their welfare longevity of athletic careers their well-being and that there's a lot of really cool things that are happening in terms of you know these objective ways of monitoring movement or locomotor health and you know that if we can keep pushing these things forward that we can hopefully, you know, prevention is better than cure. And we're really working towards those types of things right now. So I I would kind of want them to know that. (laughs) I think that's what I would try and convey to the horse. It's like, we ask a lot of you, but we're also doing a lot to kind of return the favor.
1: That's fantastic. Well, we really have enjoyed chatting with you. And, and like I said, we look forward to having you on again one day um, to hear how far this research has come and, and all that, um, you know, all, all that it's taught us that, that we can use to help our horses um, improve their welfare, as you said. So thank you again for your time. And, and thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been really nice.
0: That was a really, you know, fascinating conversation with Lindsay. Um, like I I think the the EMG research what it shows you about muscle activation uh, just because like you're essentially looking at the, at the electrical activity that travels down those motor neurons synapses to the muscle at the end plate and then it, it gives you a direct idea of what how the body's actually facilitating facilitating this movement and actually allowing muscles to contract so uh, just being able to gain insight into that with horses that you watch them from the outside you maybe can detect that there's something going on but you maybe don't understand why it is going on like this is it's just another uh tool that can be used it it goes so much deeper um you know pun intended i guess deeper into the muscle to uh to tell you what's going on there but uh because there's always this question like if you look at like a certain movement pattern um you know, maybe the horse is now bending more to the left than to the right. Is it because the musculature on the left is now contracting or is it that the musculature on the right isn't activating at all and that's what's causing the the bend? So it's always these these questions that we, as of right now, like we could describe it from the outside based on what the horse is doing in terms of movement, but we don't actually know what's going on internally that is driving that change. So um, I think it's still very much early days with respect to this data, but... Um, it's definitely laying that foundation where we're going to look back on this in five years and say, like, we're, we're now so much further ahead. We understand why the horse does what it does in these certain situations. And then we can just become that much more targeted with either diagnosing issues, treating them, and as well as training horses day to day.
1: Yeah, really, really exciting stuff. And, um, definitely looking forward to seeing what this leads to down the road so uh that's a wrap for today's episode you can find the links to today's guest and the show notes at www.sporthorsepodcast.com you can follow us on facebook and instagram at sport horse series and please just take a minute to make sure that you're following us on your favorite podcast app as well means that you'll never miss an episode you can also leave a review on um, whatever podcast app you're you're listening to us on right now that helps others to find us so we really appreciate if you take a few seconds to do that you can have all 20 plus shows of the horse radio network with you wherever you go with our free app for iphone and android go to the app store and just search horse radio network and here's to keeping your sport horse happy and healthy